you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew. I love opening the word with you. We've been looking a little deeper into Matthew chapter 5, specifically really the first 12 verses, which is um, a sermon within a sermon known as the Beatitudes. Um, the reason why we're taking a little bit to get through uh, these 12 verses is really twofold. One is it's the beginning of Jesus' sermon on the Mount, which we now know received its name because Jesus was giving the sermon on a mount. Very creative um, writing there. But the second reason is this is the foundation. These 12 verses are the foundation for what Jesus is going to teach us for the remainder of chapters 5, 6, and 7. Listen, we cannot obey the Sermon on the Mount without first submitting to the Beatitudes. Like if you have just, let's hurry up and get through the Beatitudes so we can move on with Jesus' sermon, you've missed the point because if we don't first take time to submit our knees and our hearts to the Beatitudes, we cannot. Jesus is, listen, he's not a modern day preacher. He's, what he's gonna teach us is some pretty hard stuff. And it will be impossible for us if we are not submitted to the Beatitudes. We've said much about the Beatitudes over these weeks. Uh, we've had some overarching observations. I don't have time to describe all these today, but I do want to give them to you again. One, these, be these Beatitudes are character traits necessary for every Christian, okay? Two, we are meant to manifest all of these traits. This is not a buffet. You pick which ones you like, which one. Now, Jesus, it, listen, they're all necessary, and they're all for you and me. Number three, the Beatitudes do not come natural to us, okay? Number four, the Beatitudes are more about being someone than doing something. I've not, I cannot stress that enough. Listen, the remainder of this chapter in chapter six and chapter seven, there's gonna be a lot of doing. But here at the beginning, when Jesus is laying the groundwork, it has nothing to do with doing. It has everything to do with being. And number five, these Beatitudes establish a solid foundation for the rest of Jesus' sermon. That's what we just mentioned. And the last but not least, number six, Jesus is strategic in his delivering of these Beatitudes. Each one of them seems to be building on the previous one. The order here that Jesus gives us is no accident. Of course, it makes sense that as Jesus begins his sermon and the mission of changing the hearts of men for kingdom work, that he starts with the holiness of God. It's where Jesus starts. It draws out because when we come into the presence of God's holiness, it draws out the poorness of spirit in us, right? And when we are poor of spirit, we realize we have no righteousness of our own. We realize face to face with God and his righteousness that we are utterly helpless and can do nothing. Not only that, but we mourn our sin. Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn not just our personal sin, but all sin, all the brokenness of the world, all of the things that we see that the curse has done to God's creation. We mourn and we grieve that. The Holy Spirit brings us into the presence of a holy God and reveals the blackness of our own hearts. And it's only after gaining a proper view of ourselves through the lens of God's holiness that we can become meek. And it's only when we get a true view of our brokenness before God that we start to hunger and thirst for a righteousness other than our own, the righteousness of Christ. We 
are desperately in need of something outside of ourselves to fill us, and we find that satisfaction in Jesus Christ. How could we not be merciful? As we just kind of follow this this natural trail that Jesus is teaching us here, after everything of knowing in his presence, we fall apart because we're sinful men and sinful women, and yet God has given us his son, Jesus. How how can we not be merciful? How can we not give away what we have so graciously received? And it's from being filled by Christ that we start to see the results of the next three Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. We looked at that one last week. Blessed are the pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that's the two I want us to look at this morning. So let's start in verse 8. Jesus says, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. So first of all, we must define the heart, because the beatitude here is addressing the heart of man as being more than just the seed of our affections or our emotions. In biblical imagery, the heart is the center and entirety of the man. It includes the heart, but it's also the will and the mind of the man as well. And unfortunately, Jesus' assessment of the natural heart of man is not very encouraging. (laughs) The command here is to be pure in heart, which it's easy to have this misconception when we think about the pureness of heart. How, How do we keep our hearts pure? How do we keep our minds focused on Christ and our wills aligned with God? Somehow we have come to to believe that we remain pure in heart by protecting ourselves from exterior impurities. Remember the children's song if you grew up in church? Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little hands what you touch. Be careful little feet where you go, right? It's a song that we grew up singing. And the reason why we are to be careful is because we are tempted by sin through all of our senses. So to protect our hearts, we must put a gate at the door of our hearts. And that is wise, and that is true, because evil is lurking all around us. But what if our greatest evil is not found through outwardly influences? What if our greatest evil is already beyond the gate of our heart and lurking within us? One day, Jesus was teaching with a crowd, and there were some Pharisees in the crowd, which always went really well in Jesus' ministry. And he begins to teach, and he makes a controversial statement In his teaching, I love that Jesus never held back. In Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 11, it'll be on the screen. Here's what Jesus says. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Now, that would have been a huge slap in the face of the Pharisees standing there. Because they had so many rules set up about what did and what didn't defile man. Pharisees, in fact, had a lot of food restrictions because, of course, it mattered what you put into your body. And then Jesus shows up and he blows all of that out of the water. He goes on in verse 12. Well, actually, the disciples show up and go, "Uh, Jesus, 
there's Pharisees here, and I'm not really sure if you know this, but you have really offended them, right? That's what he says in verse 12. The disciples came, do you realize you've offended the Pharisees by what you have said? And Jesus' response in verse 13, every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind guide person, <laughs> and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into the ditch. This is one of those Lazarus moments. I don't know if you remember the story when they, the news came to Jesus that Lazarus was dying, and, and, and the disciples started packing up their stuff because, of course, they're going because Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and Jesus, like, starts talking out of his head a little bit around the campfire, and they're like, uh, we don't really know what any of that means. But uh, we, I kind of felt like this is that moment. Peter's like, hey, uh, I'm just assuming it's Peter because he usually put his foot in his mouth. Um, Jesus, there's Pharisees here, and what you're saying is really making them mad. And Jesus starts talking about plant, planted and, and, and blind guys, and Peter's like, that's great. But, because notice how he goes on. Uh, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Because Thank you. <laughs> At least wait for a sad story or something for the, for the music. <laughs> so Peter shows up. Uh, so Peter, Peter shows up. Music playing. He shows up and he says, explain to us. Because this kind of probably rubbed Peter the wrong way too. Like he had always heard this, right? That there's foods that we should and should not eat. And man, there, as Jewish people, there's all these laws and regulations and and Jesus says in verse 16, don't you understand yet? Verse 17, anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer. We won't unpack that anymore, but you get the picture <laughs> of what Jesus is going after. But the words, verse 18, but the words you speak from the heart, that's what defiles you. For from the heart... Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. So the next time you do something on that list and you go, I don't know where that came from, I'll just say, it came from you. It came from you. It came from your heart. He finishes by saying, these, these are the things that defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. And that's the problem with religion. Religion is always focused on our hands and what we're doing and what we're eating and where we're going and what we're wearing. And Jesus is focused on the heart and what we're believing. If there is anything we learn from this text is that any of us are capable of anything. At any time, because the root of every act of sin is already within us. That's what Jeremiah agrees to in Jeremiah chapter 17. He didn't have much good to say about the heart either. Verse seven, chapter 17, verse 9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And I would argue we don't really know how bad it is or we'd quit giving the horrible of advice for people to follow and trust their hearts. Just trust your heart. 
Just follow your heart. Jeremiah says your heart will lead you to wickedness. Jesus says your heart, not good stuff, lurking within your life and your heart and your mind and your will. It's horrible advice because nobody has lied to you more than you've lied to you. I've said that before, haven't I? Nobody has hurt you more than you have hurt yourself. Nobody has tried to ruin your life more than your own heart. And we become the most aware of that as Christ followers, don't we? Because we can relate to the writings of Paul in Romans 7. Listen to this, verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me. Amen, Paul. (laughs) That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Verse 21, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's word with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. If there's ever been a passage of scripture that we can go, yeah, I get it. We get that. It's as we, it's, a, it's as we desire to know God and worship and please him that we become aware that there is another part of us that wants something else. want God, but there is something lurking in us that wants something different. So we start to understand that the pure heart is not a perfect heart, but rather it's an undivided heart. That's what Jesus is after here. So the key to a pure heart is a undivided, fully devoted heart to God. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 86, starting in verse 11. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you with all my heart. I will praise you, O Lord my God. I will give glory to your name forever. The psalmist knows that to honor God with a pure heart is to praise God with all our hearts. So how do we become pure at heart? There are two options. We can trust in our own works to provide it by maybe segregating from the world and becoming a monk of sorts. We lock ourselves away in seclusion from the world only to be disappointed that we can't segregate ourselves from ourselves. The problem with becoming monks and joining a monastery is the moment a man steps into it, it becomes defiled. Because what defiles us is not outside of ourselves, it's within us. cannot create within ourselves pure hearts. So that's why we must go with option two. We must join the prayer of King David who prayed this in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot 
out the stain of my sins. Wash me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you. You alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do you know what's so beautiful about that prayer? David understands it's God that has to do all of the work. Wash me. Purify me. Create within me. It is God alone who can purify us through the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. God, who started the good work in us, will finish it. But that doesn't mean that we should remain passive in the matter. The work is God's, but we are reminded in James that we are to draw near to God, and God will draw near to us. So as we acknowledge that we can't cleanse ourselves, we acknowledge that we can offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's Paul in Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, crucifying your flesh so that you are available for the work of God in us as he chooses to use us. And our reward? To see God. To see God. As the pure in heart, we are going to one day enjoy God in person as we behold him face to face. But until then, may we continue beholding him in spirit. Even in the here and now, you know this, the less pure our hearts are, the harder it is to see God and be intimate through fellowship with him. We could sit and argue and debate positionally what that looks like when we have divisive hearts, but none of us would argue with what that does to us intimately. When our hearts are divided, we feel it. We feel distanced. We feel away from our Creator, our Heavenly Father. May our hearts be undivided. And then Jesus says in verse 9, God blesses those who work for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children or the sons of God. Again, we must remember this is taught in the context of we were hopeless in our sin, and God, by his mercy, rescued us. <laughs> now, be a shalom or peacemaker, just as Jesus has made shalom between us and our heavenly Father. How much easier it would be if that beatitude said, blessed are the peace breakers. Because we can get behind that one. That could be our spiritual gift for many of us in this room. I guess I'll get on Facebook. It's my job today to kind of stir it up. <laughs> Don't you wish that's what the beatitude, blessed are the peace breakers. Yes. This is what I naturally flow towards. 
That's not what it says. It's blessed are the peacemakers. This, again, is the picture of letting God do through us what he has done to us. And we can passively be peaceful, but this is a call to be active as well in making peace. We desire peace and we do all that we can to produce and maintain it. This is the idea of diffusing peace wherever we go. It becomes our mission. That as people watch us walking down aisle seven at Walmart, they go, here comes the peacemaker. Here comes the one that is always trying to relieve hurt, stress, and brokenness in my life. This naturally flows from a pure heart. This naturally flows from a pure heart because strife comes from selfish hearts. And if we are undivided in our hearts to God, then we've already put to death the selfishness of our hearts. So God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God, and children mimic their parents. Children will repeat what they see and hear their parents do and say, don't they? As children of God, we reflect our heavenly Father to be a peacemaker is to be like God. To be a peacemaker is to do for others as God has done for us. So you see, we often think to make peace that we're going to have to take one for the team. That somehow in making peace, we are the one that's going to lose something, that we have to take a high road when we don't want to take the high road, and we're going to have to swallow our pride when we don't want to swallow our pride. So we, we feel like we have to take one for the team or that we're losing something. But in all honesty, in making peace, we are reflecting the character of our God, and that is not a lost church. That's a win. No matter how it looks or no matter how it feels, it's always, a, it's always a win to reflect the character of God. And it's not always going to feel like a win. But it's always a win. As we reflect peace through maybe lessening tensions or seeking solutions in our everyday lives, it's opening doors for us to introduce the world to the greatest peacemaker, the Prince of peace himself, Jesus Christ. I love when Jesus, uh, he's already been crucified and he's come back to life. And the disciples are hiding away in a room. They're afraid of the government. If they killed our master, what are they gonna do to us, right? And so they're hiding. And in John chapter 20, Jesus shows up uh, on a Sunday evening. Again, it says the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And then suddenly, here's Jesus standing there among them. And here, here's the first thing Jesus says. Peace be with you. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. And then he says one of the most remarkable things that, that I think Jesus ever said that we have recorded in the scriptures. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
And the next verse says he breathed on them the Holy Spirit and said, go. So he commands his disciples to be shalom carriers, and then he empowers them with his spirit to go and do so. The word peace, I guess I'm just taking some research here at its word, but the word peace is mentioned over 400 times in the scriptures. Uh, verses like Romans 14, 19, so then let us aim for harmony or peace in the church and try to build each other up. Or we have Hebrews 12, 14, work at living in peace with everyone. And you don't even have to read on because right now you're already thinking of someone, no. But the scriptures say, work. I love that word. You know, I haven't, I'm not, I'm not even going to say it. I love the way this is translated here in the New Living because it's really honest. It's raw, right? Like this isn't just, hey, just receive it. You just, just let, let the spirit be breathed on you and fill you and, and just go and, and be in love and at peace with everyone. No, Jesus says, hey, this is going to be work. Like, you're going to have to work. Can we acknowledge that living at peace with people is hard work? Can we acknowledge that with some, it's harder than others? But it's necessary work for the church. It's necessary work. God sent us Jesus so that we can ultimately have peace with God, so we can daily enjoy peace from God, and so we can be empowered to reflect the peace of God. So how do we respond to this text? Well, we ask a few questions. Is my heart fully pledged to God and his kingdom, or is it divided? Are we seeking something else? And if it does seek something more, am I willing to put it to death and trust God's will above my own? Either way, we're going to stand face to face with our creator one day and give it account for whatever decision we make. Is your heart pure? Is your heart undivided and submissive to the king of kings. And are we makers or breakers of peace? Are we reflecting well the peace that God has given us through Jesus by displaying shalom to others? Or are we guilty of breaking peace? Perhaps it's even in this moment this morning that we're gathered that the spirit is reminding you of a person or a situation that you are withholding peace from. And you could stand on the stage today and tell your story, and we would say, we don't blame you. We've hurt you. They don't deserve it. But this, but this is the, the whole idea of the gospel rule. 
Jesus could stand on this stage this morning and give a pretty good case of how you did not deserve his peace. (laughs) And yet he gives it. He bestows it upon us. And if you are a recipient of that peace, if you are a child, if you're not a Christian here, man, you're off the hook. You don't have to listen to anything I say this morning. But if you are a Christian, there's no way out of this thing. There is no loopholes in the contract. We must do for others as Christ has done for us. And if you stand on the stage and you were to tell your story and you say, I cannot forgive them, I'm unwilling to do the work, you have forgotten the work that Jesus has done in you. Or he hasn't really done a work in you. Are we makers or breakers of peace? And if today you have been reminded of a person or a situation, your response should be to run and make peace because that's what God's children do. Because that's what God has done for you. So I want to end. Can we, can we sing that new song again to end our time today? Jillian says yes, so it doesn't really matter what the band says. Get ready. <laughs> I want to end with this verse that I think is a great bookmark for us. Because, and and don't, 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 don't be distracted in this moment. I don't want you to miss this. Because the, the command is that we are to be pure in heart and that we are to be peacemakers. And again, Jesus is just preparing us for what's coming. We cannot be in obedience to what he's about to say to us for the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount if we don't submit in this moment that I don't care what comes my way, I will be undivided and I will run towards peace. When everything within me is screaming, run away from it, I will run to it because Jesus ran to me with peace be unto you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, I love this charge from Paul when he says, church, imitate God. Therefore, in everything you do. Why? Because you are his children. And children mimic their parents. So you want the world to know you're a Christian? Tell them. Read your Bible in front of them. Buy them a Bible, share your testimony, share your stories, but you really want them to know that you're a Christian? You show them by being peacemakers, by being loyal, letting them see your loyalty and undivided hearts towards God. That is how we show the world that we belong to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We're thankful for the reminder that we can do none of this outside of your power in us, working in us and through us. So God, it's fitting that we end with a verse talking about how we are to imitate you, that we are only to do for others as you have done for us because we are your children. That's the reason why we are your children, because of what you've done. You've brought us peace and you brought us forgiveness and you brought us love and you brought us grace and you brought us mercy when we did not deserve it. And so now we get to go. And we get to be not just recipients, but we get to be givers of those things. So it's good for us to end with a verse reminding us to do as you have done. Because we are your children. And it's fitting to end 
with a song again that reminds us of what you have done. So it's in the name of our Lord and Savior that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen.